So uh, Jesus has been buried, and we've been through the arrest, the trial, the crucifixion, and uh, now we see on the first day of the week, John 20, verse 1, Mary Magdalene went to the tomb early while it was still dark. So this always raises a number of questions uh, for people uh, regarding the first day of the week from a a number of different um, views. to begin with, you know, Sunday being the first day of the week, immediately the church begins to meet on Sundays and worship the Lord on Sundays. Uh, many of the Jews begin the process of worshiping on the Sabbath on Saturday and then on Sunday. Also, uh, some of them transition just to Sunday uh, pretty quickly in the first century, and certainly the Gentile church. Uh, transfers to worshiping on Sundays almost exclusively. So it comes from this resurrection of Jesus on the first day of the week, which the second portion of questions that commonly arise from this is, you know, the thought that uh, Jesus uh, was in the tomb three days and three nights, and then then, uh, the Roman Catholic institution has uh, so uh, influenced Christianity with, uh, you know, the idea of Good Friday. Now, we're going to honor Good Friday, uh, you know, coming up in uh, April of 2019. Uh, but, uh, you know, the, the the thought that Jesus was crucified on Friday is, it's impossible. It's impossible that he was crucified on Friday. And, and therein, there's actually something to point out, that there are traditions that the church has which nullify the Word of God. For most of us, we go, Good Friday, Good Wednesday. I mean, we're just celebrating Jesus Christ's crucifixion as a substitutionary atonement for us. Uh, We don't put the day here nor there. For some people, you know, new to the faith, those weak in the faith, uh, the discussion begins about, you know, well, was, was it Friday or not? Because the church holds so strongly to this concept that in the end, some people look at this as some sort of failure and they will abandon their faith or their potential faith over uh, such a discussion. So frankly stated, Jesus was not crucified on Good Friday. It's, It's not possible because he was three days and three nights in the earth and then the resurrection. So some proof texts from the scripture. John 19, verse 14, says, Now it was the preparation day of the Passover, and about the sixth hour, and he, being Pilate, said to the Jews, Behold your king. This is as they're about to crucify Jesus. Other passages say it was the preparation day, and it's incorrectly assumed that that's the preparation day for the Saturday Sabbath. It was not. It was the preparation day for Passover. Any holy day that the Jews observed and worshipped was referred to as a Sabbath. So anything that they were honoring religiously, taking the day off and celebrating, they would refer to as a Sabbath. Sometimes there would be a week-long Sabbath uh, that they would celebrate, such as in the case of Passover. So they're preparing for Passover, and when it says it was the day of preparation for the Sabbath, it's referring to the Passover, not Saturday. So, crucified on Wednesday, in the tomb before sundown, we see them very specifically concerned about the preparation day for the coming Sabbath. They need to be done with the dead body of Jesus before sundown, So they have him in the tomb before sundown, which also leads into the fact that Joseph of Arimathea and Nicodemus, in preparing the body, actually left off some of the preparations with the anointing of the ointments and the fragrant herbs so that we see Mary Magdalene and the others right within this passage coming on the first day of the week, to complete that task. So, so they hadn't, in the haste 
to get Jesus into the tomb before sundown, they didn't even complete all of the preparation for Jesus' burial. So crucified on Wednesday in the tomb before sundown, three days, three nights, Thursday, Friday, Saturday. Sundown Saturday would have been the start of Sunday, the first day of the week. And we see, you know, as we read, Mary Magdalene went to the tomb while it was still dark. So uh, she goes before dawn. We commonly think of dawn as the start of the new day. It's, it's not. At sundown the previous day, that's where Sunday begins for uh, the mind and the uh, experience of the Jews. Now, Mary Magdalene referenced there in verse 1. Remind us of Mark chapter 16, verse 9, that says, Now when he rose early on the first day of the week, parallel passage, he appeared first to Mary Magdalene, out of whom he had cast seven demons. So Mary is particularly emotionally attached to Jesus for the work that has been done in her life. You know, uh, we have uh, people, you know, part of this fellowship uh, that, you know, the Lord leads them on and they go elsewhere. I just recently had a conversation with a brother who came and uh, the Lord's opened an opportunity and they're going to be in fellowship with another Calvary chapel. And, uh, you know, he came and was one, you know, making sure it was okay. Uh, you know, as far as the new Calvary, you know, what did I know about them? And was it okay? You know, did he think that was a good idea that he take his family and be in fellowship there? And I said, absolutely. You know, it's a, a wonderful opportunity for you. And then he began to express how grateful he was for what the Lord, and not, not what I've done, but what the Lord has done in his life here. He met his wife here. You know, they got married. Uh, they, you know, had their first child here. They've been through many great steps of growth and you know, maturity in their lives. And so that, that gratitude that, you know, we often have for those people in our lives that have such great influence. A demon-possessed woman delivered by Jesus Christ. Of course, anyone who was affected, who is today affected by the ministries of Jesus Christ and the Holy Spirit working is going to have a deep sentiment. But surely... You know, as the scripture says, he who is forgiven much loves much. Mary Magdalene, delivered from such a horrible state of existence, has this deep love uh, for Jesus Christ. So again, on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene went to the tomb early while it was still dark and saw that the stone had been taken away from the tomb. Now, the, the stone is significant in a lot of ways. Uh, certainly, we'll examine uh, this passage in a moment. Uh, regarding the uh, you know Jewish and Roman significance, but I like uh, Max Licato wrote that book years ago. He still moves stones, you know, and and the question is raised uh, by Max Licato and others about you know why was the stone moved, and and commonly you know uh, the thought was that so Jesus could get out of the tomb. Well, what we see is Jesus is no longer restricted by obstacles like a stone as he was previously in his ministry. He, he begins immediately here in this passage to appear and disappear from locations at will. So he didn't have to have the stone moved. The stone needed to be moved so that everyone who's about to come to the tomb can see into the stone or, or into the tomb. Uh, the obstacles in our life, in the lives of the people that you love, you know, those things that, you know, some of you guys have talked to me about. I have this friend, I have this relative, I want them to know the Lord. And, you know, I, they just argue with me and they have these, pray. Pray that God would move the stone, that they could see the resurrection of Jesus Christ and understand the things that they need to and be delivered from their circumstances. Uh, any of us that have been delivered by the Lord know that only the Lord can open our eyes. Conversations help. Arguments uh, can show us certain things. 
but in the end it's the Lord who causes us to see things. And that's interesting in this passage because <clears throat> there are two different versions of the word saw that are used. One is the idea of simply seeing a thing. The other one is to see with understanding. And so that seeing with understanding is what is so necessary. Here, the stone had been taken away. The passage we want to look at is Matthew chapter 27, beginning at verse 62. So on the next day, which followed the day of preparation, the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered together to Pilate, saying, Sir, we remember while he was still alive how that deceiver said, After three days I will rise. Therefore, command that the tomb be made secure until the third day, lest his disciples come by night and steal him away and say to the people, he has risen from the dead. So the last deception will be worse than the first. Pilate said to them, You have a guard, and that's important to understand that he's giving them a guard. You know, we read, You have a guard, and it can lead you to think that he's saying you've got guards of your own, and that's not what he's saying. He's saying, I relinquish to you a, a uh, contingent of guards. You know, you have a guard. Uh, he's saying to them, go your way, make it secure as you know how. So they went and made the tomb secure, sealing the stone and setting the guard, sealing the stone with the Roman seal. Uh, anyone breaks that seal, it does not matter what the reason is, then it is a punishable by death offense. Uh, anything that is sealed by Rome under Pilate's signet has to be opened under the authority and command of Pilate. You do not have the right to interfere with that seal in any way. And the Roman guards that are set there in that place guard it. We know from parallel passages that once the stone was rolled away, the guards went to the priests and explained how the angels had arrived and rolled the stone away and they had all feared for their lives and fled. And the priests paid them sums of money and told them to tell the lie that the disciples had come and stolen Jesus' body away. Uh, then later we read in the book of Acts how when Peter was delivered from pre prison, there's a similar mandate, and the guards who were guarding him were questioned and then put to death with their own swords for having failed at their duties. So, you know, the scripture gives us the inclination, the understanding, the insight that the stone being moved out of the way is clearly supernatural and that the guards told the lie in order to uh, promote, you know, the false teaching that Jesus had been, his body had been stolen. So, so they went to the tomb, secured it, sealing the stone, setting the guard. Back in chapter 20 at verse 2, Speaking of Mary Magdalene, then she ran and came to Simon Peter and to the other disciple whom Jesus loved and said to them, they have taken away the body or the Lord out of the tomb. They have taken away the Lord out of the tomb. And we do not know where they have laid him. A couple of things there. John continues to write in a humble sense, referring to himself as the other disciple. Um, we'll see here shortly that while he tells us that it was the other disciple, he then quickly tells us that the other disciple outran Peter. So humility and pride combined in the same passage. It's an interesting sort of commentary on the human condition. But, uh, you know, here uh, she comes also saying, we do not know where they have laid him. Uh, indicating that there were others with Mary when she went to the tomb. And we know from the other Gospels that that is the case, that there were other women who went to the tomb, and they had their own miraculous experience when they were there with her. Peter, therefore, went out and the other disciple and were going to the tomb. So they both ran together. 
And the other disciple outran Peter and came to the tomb first. He, stooping down and looking in, and here's the first reference, saw the linen cloths lying there, yet he did not go in. So he saw, but not with understanding. This is strictly from the observation you know, point of view. He did not go in. He saw the linen cloths lying there, yet he did not go in. Then Simon Peter came, following him, and went into the tomb. And he saw the linen cloths lying there, and the handkerchief that had been around his head, not lying with the linen cloths, but folded together in a place by itself. Then the other disciple who came to the tomb first, when he went in, he saw and believed. Two simple observations, and then the seeing with understanding that comes. They've been told that Jesus Christ is gone, but the understanding, as it says in verse 9, for as yet they did not know the scripture that he must rise again from the dead. They don't have the resurrection understanding yet. What is the understanding? The difference between saw and understood here. It's in the description of the cloths. The cloths that are being described are being described in such a way that they are unmarred. So the... um, the way the body was wrapped. Uh, generally speaking, it, it was a very long piece of cloth. The body would be laid at one end of the cloth. They would put the ointment on the body. They would clean and wash the body. And then they would put the ointment on the body and they would pack around the body herbs and flowers and fragrant things to make a beautiful presentation both in appearance and in odor. They were trying to make this whole death experience as pleasant as possible. They would then fold the cloth lengthwise over the body from head down to the feet, tying it at the base, and then they would tie from the top to the bottom or the bottom of the top, beginning at each sort of jointed section around the neck, at the elbows, at the hands, at the hip, when the hands would be tied together, the knees, and then the ankles would be tied together. So you have this bound um, individual, and then they would anoint the outside of it so that it would become an encasement. It would harden the outside. It's not the mummification process of the Egyptians at all, but it's going to have a, 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 an outer layer that is going to dry and be firm and very hard on on this person who has been buried in this way. Uh, You're not going to come and get into the burial cloths to retrieve a body without cutting and tearing things open. Uh, All of this cloth that's been wrapped and anointed and folded and tucked and cinched off extremely tight is meant to encase that person inside their own death burial shroud. So so what's being described is that that shroud he was buried in is lying there now as though the body literally evaporated out of it. It isn't as though the claws have been sort of ripped apart or busted apart or cut apart and then flung open and Jesus has been pulled out of this. It's as though Jesus was there and and it was just deflated and now the cloths are lying there. Secondly, it makes this point that the cloth that was on his head was not with it. It was folded together in a place by itself. Now, that's significant because... When, to this day, uh, in the Orthodox Jewish culture, someone dies a violent death, as quickly as possible, they cover the person's head up to prevent the 
um, news of spreading too quickly that someone has died. They want to get to the family and they want to let them know before it becomes public knowledge. You know, before the whole town knows that your relative has died in an act of violence. They try to cover the shame of that person's death and sort of bring it to light quietly so that it can be in a respectful way. And then they leave that covering on their head all the way through to the burial. So um, if someone dies a violent death, they cover their head, and then when they take them, they will take the covering off, wash and prepare the body, and put the covering back on. Now it becomes a symbol and a shroud of sort of humility that they've died in this act of violence. If, if an individual is found with a covering on their head in burial, then the assumption is made this person died a, a violent death. It's interesting that the shroud is lying there, and it's completely intact, but now the covering that was on the head seemingly inside that shroud is now outside the shroud, folded and setting by itself. So there, there are some things in the description there that are kind of unique. There, there are various arguments uh, about all of this. Now this points over to the Shroud of Turin and whether that is the legitimate burial cloth of Jesus Christ or not. Uh, very clearly stated, there's no way to know. I mean, there's lots of really interesting things about the Shroud of Turin that uh, it would be well worth anyone's time to research, read, and examine. Uh, the Shroud of Turin project was extensive. There are a number of things that I'll describe in a moment that are unique about it, but it needs to be said very clearly. There's no way to know with any certainty that that shroud is, in fact, the burial cloth of Jesus Christ. There are those that want to insist that it is knowable, and what you find is the people that want to insist that are also the people that want to place way, way too much veneration on it. They, they want to turn it into a, a relic of worship. It's, it's not what the Lord intended at all. He doesn't want us uh, to venerate uh, the Shroud of Turin uh, you know, to the level of being some holy article that we should all be praying to or praying through. And that's the tendency of believers. I mean... Moses lifts the serpent up in the wilderness that the people could be delivered from the plague of the uh, venomous snakes that has been released upon them because of their sin. And uh, the people are delivered uh, when they look upon uh, the serpent. They immediately take the serpent and put it inside its own tabernacle and begin a... Uh, and it's weird... They begin a worship of Yahweh through the serpent. So um, they they are you know much like the golden calf, you know they they are honoring God, but they're doing it by praying to the serpent that God, you know the brass serpent uh, that God has provided them with. And it was uh, Hezekiah who went into the house of the serpent and took it out and brought it out on the street and smashed it into pieces and said Nehushtan, meaning thing of brass. You know, in other words, that's all it is. It's just a thing of brass. This is not God. This is not who you should be praying to. The shroud, it's a piece of cloth. Okay, If it does anything to stir your heart, it should point you straight at Jesus Christ. So some details about the shroud, not to dwell on many or any or to turn our hearts away from Jesus toward it. But um, the flowers, um, the pollen from the flowers that were uh, around the body that was buried in this are all from the region of Jerusalem, and they were all in bloom at the time of Jesus Christ's crucifixion. So... Different flowers bloom at different seasons, and so it fits the time frame there. Um, there were coins placed on the eyes 
of uh, the person who was inside this shroud. Uh, we, we know this. I should, I guess, begin with that. There's an image that is burned into the shroud that is three-dimensional. It's a three-dimensional model of the person who was inside this. It was burned with an unknown form of radiation that was so controlled that it didn't burn the entire depth of a single strand of fabric. It burned the surface without burning through. I mean, a level of control in the burning process that's it's impossible. We, we can't even achieve that type of stuff to this day. So the, the image is burned in, and uh, the individual was uh, approximately 31 to 33 years old, uh, given on bone structure, uh, teeth wear, all kinds of stuff they're able to tell from the image that is there. And, and at first, when they were examining the images in three-dimensional modelings uh, for uh, photography, uh, there was a confusion until they realized there are actually two separate images there. One is the soft tissue image. The other one is the skeletal image. So you can literally find the two different images there and look at them separately. Uh, it's an interesting thing that the skeletal image of the individual would be burned into uh, the shroud also. Coins that were upon the eyes uh, are dated. The dates can be read. And those coins, uh, the image and the assumed date, uh, were not minted uh, previous to the year of Jesus' death. So they had to have appeared uh, at Jesus' death. Um, the individual who was in the shroud was definitely crucified. They were definitely scourged, and they also had been pierced through the side the same as Jesus was. So they have all of the same wounds as Jesus Christ. Uh, there was a crown of thorns plated into the head of the individual. Uh, the uh, thistle pollen is uh, found in the crown and the blood marks are uh, seen on the shroud from where the crown uh, was there. Crucified hands and uh, feet um, and uh, approximately 5 foot 11, uh, long beard, long hair. number of other elements about it, uh, really interesting, worth your time to look into, but in the end, no way to know. Um, I, I do find it interesting that Jesus said no sign would be given except the sign of Jonah. The Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. Uh, the head covering, uh, historically, the shroud and the head covering uh, were kept. Uh, this is all church history, not legend, church history. Uh, they were kept by Christianity, uh, presumed to be the shroud of Jesus Christ. And there were, um, how to describe, miracles, but unique miracles of healing that occurred repeatedly with both the shroud and the head covering. They were separated by continents for hundreds of years, traveling around and being kept in different monasteries. Uh, there were several times where each of them individually were brought two people that were on their deathbeds and it was just set upon them and they were instantaneously made well, completely healed. Um, you know, so sick, so near death that the people who experienced the healing didn't even know that people were bringing anything to them to pray over them. And when touched by the cloth, uh, they were healed. You know, that might not be all that miraculous uh, when you consider that when they brought Paul's sweatbands and, you know, his handkerchiefs and his aprons and laid them upon people, they were made well. And in the first century of the church, people simply set their elderly and their sick outside so that Peter's shadow could fall upon people and they would be made well. So, again, do your own research. Uh, you, you can't. It's impossible to come to any better conclusion um, 
one interesting fact during the Shroud of Turin project is one of the men that was working on the shroud uh, was allowed to take samples um, from the cloth that had what appeared to be blood stains on them. And he was uh, tasked with discovering whatever he could about the blood. And uh, the first thing he discovered was, yes, it was in fact blood. It wasn't dye or ink or paint. It was in fact blood. Uh, the next thing he discovered was it was in fact human blood. And uh, he even went as far as being able to determine the type of the human blood. And uh, he said at that point, uh, you know, he had been so caught up in the process of just pursuing the scientific evidence that he was struck with an overwhelming sense of ominous fear in the fact that he is literally handling possibly the blood of Jesus Christ. That's that's quite a thought uh, right there to, to be part of. So anyway, uh, do your research and, uh, you know, let it be informational to you, however it may be. So they aren't aware at this point, uh, as yet they did not know the scripture, that he must rise again from the dead. Verse 10, the disciples went away again to their own homes. But Mary stood outside by the tomb weeping, and as she wept, she stooped down and looked into the tomb, and she saw two angels in white sitting, one at the head and the other at the feet, where the body of Jesus had lain. Then they said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? And she said to them, Because they have taken away my Lord, and I do not know where they have laid him. Now when she said this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing there and did not know that it was Jesus. And apparently, from the way it was described and written just there, she didn't know that the other two were angels until after the fact. Uh, you know, she's there, uh, she's left, she's come back, you know, Peter and John have left, uh, and now she's here and looks in, for all she knows, the angels were in there perhaps when Peter and John were in there. And now uh, she has this discussion with them and hears the voice and turns around and Jesus is speaking to her. Doesn't know him. That's very similar to what we see on the road to Emmaus as the two men are traveling with Jesus and he gives them a whole Bible study beginning in creation and bringing them all the way up through Malachi explaining all of the Old Testament and how it pertains to them. And it's not until uh, he is breaking bread and praying that they recognize him as being Jesus. So here in the moment, be it that her eyes are filled with tears and the sorrow that's in her heart that she's not paying attention or that Jesus has miraculously shrouded himself from her understanding, she doesn't recognize him. Verse 15, Jesus said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? Whom are you seeking? She, supposing him to be the gardener, said to him, Sir, if you've carried him away, tell me where you have laid him, and I will take him away. Um, it's not unreasonable to think uh, at all to think that Mary doesn't recognize Jesus. She's not looking for Jesus. This is how much she doesn't believe in the resurrection yet. Uh, probably every one of us has seen videos of soldiers returning home and surprising their family. And their family member is in the kitchen or at work or somewhere in public, and they don't expect to see their loved one standing there. And they'll turn right around and look at them, and there's a few seconds before that you know overwhelming joy of realization hits them if she's not looking for him and she's crying her eyes out and it isn't being revealed to her uh, who this is it's very reasonable and i love the fact that she says i'll take him away just tell me where you put the body i'll i'll carry this 175 180 pound man all by myself you just tell me where his body is and I'll take care of it. Great, impassioned love uh, for Jesus Christ. I'll take him away. Jesus said to her, Mary, exclamation point. She turned and said, Rabboni, which is to say, teacher. Uh, 
Jesus said to her, Do not cling to me, for I have not yet ascended to my father. But go to my brethren and say to them, I am ascending to my father and your father, and to my God and your God. Now, there has been much declared about this statement, do not cling to me. And uh, again, the Roman Catholic institution has uh, developed strange, mystical understandings about how she couldn't touch him at this point, that he was so somehow super spiritual now that he'd been resurrected that she wasn't worthy of. That's not what's being said at all. Not at all. A simple understanding of the original language leaves us to understand that she, he is saying to Mary, it's not necessary that you cling to me. I haven't ascended to my father yet. I'm not leaving right now. You know, her, her whole grab a hold of Jesus is, I lost you once. You were crucified and buried, and I thought I'd never see you again. And now you're right here. I'm never letting go. I'm going to hang on to you in such a way that no one could ever pry you out of my fingers. And all Jesus is saying is, it's not necessary to hang on to me. Like, this. I'm going to be with you for a period of time. And then I will ascend to my Father and to your Father, to your God and to my God. So it's not necessary is all he's saying. Verse 18, Mary Magdalene came and told the disciples that she had seen the Lord and that he had spoken these things to her. Then the same day at evening, being the first day of the week, when the doors were shut, where the disciples were assembled for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood in the midst and said to them, Peace be with you. Uh, that demonstrates how fearful they were. They were trying to live in secret. Uh, they had just taken the leader of their entire movement, and they had crucified him publicly. They had watched Jesus die a horrific death, and they're living in fear. Jesus passes through locked doors, enters the room unseen, and is just now standing in their midst, declaring peace onto them. Verse 20, when he had said this, he showed them his hands and his side. Then the disciples were glad when they saw the Lord. So Jesus said to them again, Peace to you, as the Father has sent me, I also send you. And when he had said this, he breathed on them and said to them, Receive the Holy Spirit. That is an important verse in all of the Scripture. John chapter 20, verse 22. Breathed on them and said, Receive the Holy Spirit. You'll notice they don't speak in tongues. You'll notice they don't prophesy. You'll notice many things that our Pentecostal brothers insist must happen when you receive the Holy Spirit don't occur here. Okay, B Both things need to be pointed out. When they receive the baptism of the Holy Spirit, there is a separate experience that they have. They received the Holy Spirit here. And there are those that literally want to say, no, this couldn't have been when they received the Holy Spirit because those things aren't present. Look, if Jesus says receive the Holy Spirit, guess what happens? You receive the Holy Spirit. You can't, you can't resist the, the statement of God himself commanding his Spirit upon you. Now in verse 23, it says, if you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven them. If you retain the sins of any, they are retained. And from here, you get, again, I'm just beating up the Roman Catholic institution tonight, so I'll just stay on the roll while I'm at it. <clears throat> you get the strange mystical teachings that you need to have your sins forgiven by a uh, pope or one of the cardinals or one of the priests in order to have that forgiveness. You know, whoever you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven them. So if you don't get to confession, then you retain your sins. You know, if you retain the sins of any, they are retained. There, there are a lot of passages that teach us what this means. I'm going to give us two 
this evening that summarize all of it very, very clearly. Okay? Jesus is teaching the people close to the end of his earthly ministry in the book of Luke. And there he begins to declare woes upon the Pharisees. And he just busts those guys up for their hypocrisy. And in the midst of it, as Jesus is declaring it, the scribes say, man, by saying all of these things, the lawyers, by saying all of these things about the Pharisees, you're attacking us. Like, I don't know if you realize it, but all the things you're criticizing these Pharisees for, we do the same things. And Jesus says, essentially, yeah, while we're at it, let's bust you guys up too. And he, woe unto you, scribes and lawyers. And he goes through this great proclamation of their condemnation. And he comes to Luke chapter 11, verse 52, where he says, woe to you, lawyers, for you've taken away the key of knowledge. You might want to under, underline that. You did not enter in yourselves, and those who were entering, you hindered. Okay. The key of knowledge. This was an honor that was granted to the religious leaders of the day. They would literally oftentimes, not always, but literally oftentimes, be given a key. And it was a symbolic key, and they would wear it. It didn't really unlock anything. They would wear it usually upon their sash, upon their belt, and it would be hanging so that everyone could see, oh, like, you know, the key to the kingdom, the key to uh, the city, the key to knowledge. He has the key. And that would let people know this man has reached a place of education and understanding in spiritual and religious things, that if you want to know about things such as that, you would ask this man, see him in public with this large symbolic key on his robe, you would be left with the understanding that that guy is very educated in spiritual matters. And if I wanted to know spiritual things, I could inquire of him. And certainly anything that he says about spiritual matters, I should take his truth, because after all, he has the key of knowledge with him. Look, there it is. Okay, So Jesus making this statement to them, for you have taken away the key of knowledge. You do not enter in yourselves. You don't, you don't unlock anything for people. This key is supposed to unlock things for people. You, you guys aren't unlocking anything. In fact, the people who want to get in, you're locking the door. You're keeping people out, is what Jesus is saying to them. Now jump over to Matthew chapter 16 and look at verse 19, where Jesus says, And I will give you the keys of the kingdom, and whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth will be loose in heaven. And now from here, the Protestant side of Christianity has taken this idea of binding and loosing and they've created things that the Scripture doesn't teach at all. You know, I, I don't mean to offend anybody here tonight, but if, if you're of the opinion that we can just bind whatever devil has authority over Mount Desert Island, Trenton, and Ellsworth, and we'll just claim victory and, and loose God's Spirit upon this realm. I've, I've been in prayer meetings where people were binding the devil and loosing the Spirit, and nothing was happening. No change in those communities. What Jesus is saying, what he is referring to when he says in John chapter 20, if you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven them. If you retain the sins of any, they are retained. What he's saying in Luke chapter 11, verse 52, you take away the key of knowledge. What he's saying in Matthew chapter 16, verse 19, I give you the king keys of the kingdom of heaven is much more along the ideas of when you're looking at a map. And there on the map, there are all these little symbols. You can read the town names, but there are a bunch of symbols. 
And you're like, what in the world is this long squiggly line with all these little hash marks all the way down that? What is that all about? And then you look down in the lower corner of the map or somewhere on the map, and there's this little box, and it has the keys to the map. There's that little long line with all those little hash marks on it, and it's labeled as railroad tracks. And you're like, oh, so all of this on this map, that key right there tells me these are railroad tracks. And so what are all these little triangles here I'm seeing on the map? And then you look down in the key, and oh, those are campsites. Those are those are places I go, what is this? Oh, that's a dam and a river. And so all these, these keys tell us what the symbols on the map represent. And that is literally what was meant when the Jews gave someone the key of knowledge. What they were saying was, you have enough of an understanding of the Scripture, such a thorough understanding of the Scripture, that you know God's character. You know God's Word. You know what things symbolize and mean. So when people ask you, you, like a key to a map, can give them the understanding of the circumstances and the Scripture. It's the same thing that Jesus is saying. It's the same thing that Jesus is saying to his disciples when he says, I'll give you the keys to the kingdom. And that whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth will be loose in heaven. This is how it goes, right? If you are literally looking at a map, and there on the map there is this road that comes to a river, and there's this strange squiggly line, and you don't know what it means. But you look down in the corner, and it says, Bridge Out. You can't then say to someone who's going to travel down that road, don't worry about it. I know that historically that symbol has represented a bridge having been washed out or demolished. But I have authority to bind and loose things here on earth. So I hereby declare that that symbol no longer means bridge out. You feel free to drive down that road, and I know it's going to look like it when you get to it. But I'm going to, spiritually, through my mystical power, declare to you that the bridge is not out. Feel free to just drive right out into open space. The bridge is really there. Sounds stupid, right? Sounds foolish. It's just as stupid to say to an entire culture, Look, I know that previously marriage has been defined as being between one man and one woman. And I know that a whole bunch of the culture is going to tell you that it's wrong. But I, through my mystical power, am going to now hereby declare to you that that is no longer forbidden. See, what you're saying in that moment is, your sins, which the Scripture clearly declares and defines, I now hereby say are not sins. I'm redefining the map. I'm redefining the keys. The people who would want to get into the kingdom, I'm now forbidding them. You think about this, you guys. If I tell someone your sins are forgiven, but their sins are not forgiven in heaven, I don't have authority to change that. The authority that Jesus Christ is talking about, the authority that we're seeing in all of these passages, is the authority of knowledge that Jesus Christ has already given them. There are people that come to me and say, well, I know the Scripture says that we're not supposed to have sex before we're married, but we already love one another as though we're married, and in God's eyes we are married, so it's not a sin. No, it still is a sin. You can agree together. I can agree with you. The whole world can agree with you. And it's not going to change the keys that open the kingdom. It's not going to change. I'm not going to be able to bind something. 
my binding it on earth has to do with the fact that it's already bound in heaven. And God has given me that knowledge so I can bind it for them right there. I can say, no, 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 no. No, no. Your sins are retained upon you. By my knowledge and the keys of knowledge from God's word, I tell you that your sin is retained. They're saying, we don't have any sin. And I can say, no, you do. You do. The same is true of the person that comes and says, I lived a horrible life. You can't believe how sinful I was. I was the worst person. When Paul says, I was chief of sinners, I can't even tell you the things I've done. I've done worse than Paul. I've done stuff that if it was known, you know, somebody might say, I'd be going to jail. I've confessed my sins to the Lord, and I still feel guilty every day every day i walk around and i'm just burdened by this guilt that i drag behind me and i say now wait a minute if you've confessed your sins jesus christ said you are faithful and just he he is faithful and just to forgive you your sins and cleanse you from all unrighteousness you you might have to go turn yourself into the police and go do your time, but you will not be guilty. You will be forgiven by the Lord. The guilty conscience, I can tell someone, no, 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 you've been loosed. I have the keys of knowledge from God's word that tells me that if you confess your sins, he is faithful and just to forgive you your sins and cleanse you from all unrighteousness. You have, regardless of how you feel about it, you have been forgiven by the Lord. Loosed. Loosed on heaven, loose on earth, loose on heaven. You know, bound. Bound on earth, bound by heaven. These things aren't something that someone else can change. Receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven them. If you retain the sins of any, they are retained. Continuing in John chapter 20, verse 24. Now Thomas called the twin. Oh man, there's some debate about that. You know who the twin is? Oh, we have no idea. That's how simple it is. People get so silly. I like the best explanation I like is that we are his twin. If you look at Thomas and you can see yourself there, then just look at that. You know, we're a lot like him. We have no knowledge of who the twin is or why they called him that. You know, maybe it was because, uh, you know, Thomas was moving around so much that it felt like there were more than one of him in the room. You know, he was here, he was there. It just felt like, weren't you just over there? Now you're over there? I don't know. We have no idea why they called him the twin. So silly that people argue about the dumbest stuff. Thomas called the twin, one of the twelve, was not with them when Jesus came. The other disciples therefore said to him, we have seen the Lord. So he said to them, unless I see in his hands the print of the nails and put my finger in the print of of the nails to put my hand into his side, I will not believe. Now, for there, he's referred to as Doubting Thomas. And honestly, what he is, is realist. Now, certainly Jesus is going to say things that we need to take to heart about believing even though we haven't seen, but I like the fact that Thomas is not just a yes man. He has to know these things for himself. There are so many people that when you say things to them within Christianity, they, they give you the, yeah, 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 absolutely, yes, yes, oh, I believe, I believe. But then when you watch their conduct, they don't actually believe. They haven't actually absorbed it. Maybe they have into their heart. Maybe they have into their head, but they haven't adopted it into their behavior. And that's where Thomas is at. He's just saying, that's not been my experience yet. We want to call them doubter? Okay, I suppose that that's appropriate to a certain place. But I would actually take the encouragement to be like Thomas to whatever degree it's appropriate. You don't want to just confess things that haven't been your, your own experiences. What this man is saying is, I haven't seen that. That's not been what I have experienced. It's, it's so unfortunate uh, the way that this happens because it defames Christ. 
People make claims about experiences that they've had, and then that gets followed, and the next person is telling it to other people, and then you discover years later it's false. Like, you know, I died and spent five minutes in heaven or 20 minutes in hell or wherever it was. And then years later, you discover that wasn't the case at all. The little boy that was telling everybody he had been to heaven and seen all these different things. And uh, his parents published a book about all that he had said that he had experienced. And once he was an adult, he came forward and declared to the world that he didn't experience any of those things. That was all stuff that his father had spoon-fed him. Anyone who builds their faith on that stuff is going to have it destroyed when those types of circumstances come to light. Thomas is simply saying, you've had that experience. Good for you. I haven't. I haven't. Until I've experienced it, I'm not going to claim it as my own. And after eight days, his disciples were again inside, and Thomas with them. More than a week has passed. Jesus came, the doors being shut, and stood in the midst and said, Peace to you. Then he said to Thomas, Reach your finger here. Look at my hands. Reach your hand here. Put it in my side. Do not be unbelieving, but believing. Thomas answered and said to him, My Lord and my God. Okay, uh, This statement, uh, my Lord and my God, is a Greek grammar rule that makes Jesus the Lord and God. So, uh, for any of us that have Jehovah's Witnesses friends or Mormon friends or people that are in and around Christianity but just can't grasp the idea that Jesus is God, this is one of the lo- those locations that declares to us that this is in fact one and the same. You know, if we uh, you know think about ways we do that, I, you know, I say. You know, Lori, my wife and the mother of my children. It's one and the same. You you know, I don't have Lori, my wife, and then there's also the mother of my children. You know, for me, that's one person, and it is Lori. You know, here, that's exactly what Thomas is saying. Jesus is my Lord and my God, and God does not contradict him at all in this setting. One interesting point. Eight days has passed. And when Jesus arrives, he is completely aware of the conversation that Thomas had with the disciples, indicating that even though they could not see Jesus at the time that Thomas made those statements, Jesus was in the room. Jesus was present when Thomas made those statements. Matthew 28, verse 20, Jesus says, Lo, I am with you always, even unto the end of the age. When it doesn't feel like Jesus is there, he's there. Regardless of how the circumstances appear. John 20, 29, Jesus said to him, Thomas, because you've seen me, you've believed. Blessed are those who have not seen and yet believe. That's you and I. We haven't seen these things that Thomas has seen. What we have seen, we believe the Lord on. I like Peter telling us that you know he was at the Mount of Transfiguration, but there's something more sure than that. It's the word of prophecy, the word of God. Scripture is more sure than the experiences of seeing Jesus transfigured on the Mount with Moses and Elijah. John, uh, John 20, verse uh, 30, and Truly Jesus did many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not written in this book. But these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you may have life in his name. John 21, the next chapter, verse 25, tells us that there are also many other things that Jesus did, which if they were written one by one, I suppose that even the whole world itself could not contain the book's that would be written. Amen. 
I think about um, the occasions where we're reading through the Gospels and it says that he would go into a certain town and they would bring him all who were sick and demon-possessed and he would heal them all. You know, we have a few key points of examples throughout the Scriptures of miracles and conversations and teachings. John is telling us that if everything was written down that Jesus did, it wouldn't be possible to contain it. Continuous, non-stop ministry. It's going to be such a blessing to be in His presence and experience that you know, radiant glory that fills the whole world. What a blessing it will be to see that day come. Well, we'll pick up at chapter 21 next week. Why don't we stand and we'll pray. Father, we thank you again for your love and the opportunity that we have here. I pray that you would continue to bless us, Lord, that as we follow you and we are obedient to you and sharing our faith with others, that you would accomplish your will, perform your work in us and through us. Bless us. Keep us. Please continue to provide for us and protect us until we are together again. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.